Welcome to the podcast for Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our city campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation, and our world. Tonight, we are going through the book of Ruth. It's one of only two books in the Bible that are written or named after a woman. Um, and uh, Ruth is a profound uh, book. Have you got, um, I don't know if you saw as you came in, we actually have a series booklet, which uh, I know a whole bunch of you may have picked up uh, and it's probably sitting on the floor of your car somewhere, uh, uh, if not in the bin. Um, no, I'm joking, but seriously. Um, so what you can do is right now you can download that and uh, there's, a, there's a, a, a code, QR code, which you can use or just jump online, go to media series and there's resources and you can journal through this series. It's going to be great next uh, three weeks. As part of this series, we're going to be exploring an amazing story, a story of God's faithfulness and God's faithful people who served and loved God in unfaithful times. Uh, But as they did, they saw God's provision, His goodness and His kindness. It's a wonderful story, a short story. You can sit down and read it in 15 or 20 minutes. And uh, it's a wonderful story of God, uh, of His work. It's a story of love and redemption. And so what we're going to do is we're going to invite some people just to come and read the chapters as we journey through. So Hannah is going to come and read chapter 1 tonight. So why don't you get your Bibles open and get to Ruth chapter 1. The words are going to be on the screen behind and Hannah is going to read Ruth chapter 1. Thank you, Hannah. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. They went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they lived there about 10 years, both Mahlon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she said, She and her daughter-in-laws prepared to return home from there. With her two daughter-in-laws, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, "'No, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud and she said and said to her, "We will go back with you to your people." But Naomi said, "Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. As they wept aloud again, at this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, 
Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. That when Naomi realised that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman explained, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Thank you, Hannah. And good job with all of those hard names. (laughs) Uh, It's the joy of the Old Testament. There are some strange names in there. Hey, some of you may know that I uh, am from a large family. Uh, I have got three brothers and three sisters, which means that there's seven kids in the family and I'm the oldest. And when I grew up, it's a little bit different to today where there's loads of digital devices and kids can kind of have access to different things. Back in my day, in the olden days, uh, we had one old TV with one VCR player. Um, anyone remember VCRs, you know, that, that, was, that retro? Uh, and so, seven kids, one TV with a VCR player, we had many fights over what we were going to watch when we sat down to watch TV. You know, me and my brothers, Well, we were quite happy just to watch sport. I mean, cricket, football, lawn bowls, we don't care. As long as it's sport, there's competition, we'll watch it. And we used to love it. Summertime, we're coming up to summer, test cricket. Five days of test cricket. It is amazing. You can watch five days of cricket and still not get a result. It's amazing. Oh, my sisters didn't agree. And, uh, and they would complain, they still complain that um, we always got to watch more sport on the TV than what they wanted to watch. And what they really wanted to watch was girls' movies. You know, those movies of where, where a girl kind of comes out of nowhere and meets, you know, this handsome man and it's all like happily ever after, you know, this kind of thing. So that, that's what they love to watch. And so we were forced as boys to watch these movies. And there was one in particular, there was a few that was on high rotation on the VCR player, high quality HD VCR recorded off Channel 7 or Channel 9, whatever it was. You remember you record the video off the show? Amazing, amazing quality. Uh, There was one movie that I watched a lot. It was The Sound of Music. Anyone, anyone seen The Sound of Music? Who hasn't seen The Sound of Music? Wow, there's a few. Wow, one of the great musicals. I reckon I've watched it 15, 20, 30 times uh, over my life. In fact, uh, the other day I sat down with our three girls and Jacob and we watched The Sound of Music together. And what was scary about it 
was that I knew it word for word. <laughs> kind of like, I was, I was the guy kind of going, here's the, I was just say things before they said it. Anyway, anyway, so that's, that's a bit strange. But, but you know, it was kind of, so there's some good music in there. The reason we watched it was because it was storm season and I just randomly started singing, when the dog bites, when the bee stings. Come on, kids, it's okay. Look, if the Von Trapp kids can sing it, they're okay, you're okay. And if you know the story at all, it's a story about a nun called Maria, who struggles to find her place uh, in the convent, and um, she's working through her own call, her own life. She's a bit confused, and so they end up sending her off to be a nanny uh, at this house with, with these seven kids, and, uh, and, uh, and it's, it's a family of a wealthy, retired naval captain, Captain Von Trapp, and he's a harsh man, uh, but as Maria goes in, the kids just fall in love with her. You know the story. She plays the guitar, and they sing in the Austrian mountains and it's wonderful and beautiful and then eventually uh, Captain Von Trapp and Maria fall in love. It's this unlikely story, this nun who gets married to this retired captain, this unlikely love story. You know, we love a good love story, unlikely love stories and the book of Ruth is one of these beautiful, unlikely love stories. And uh, I don't want to give away everything tonight because tonight, but, but I need to give you some hope because tonight's hard going. I'm just going to say, we just read it. It's kind of like chapter one, everyone dies. <laughs> it does get better. But like many good stories, you have to start or often it starts with kind of like this tension, this something is not right with the world, but it ends up being this beautiful love story of uh, Ruth meeting Boaz and seeing God's provision in it all. And to get a context, we read in the very first verse these words, in the days when the judges ruled. Now to get a context of this book, it comes after the book of Judges, which Judges comes after the book of Joshua. So we're not too far from where the people of Israel have come out of the wilderness, have escaped uh, uh, Egypt, they've come through the wilderness, they've walked around the wilderness for 40 years with Moses. Finally, they go into the promised land with Joshua. And once Joshua dies, there they are in the promised land. He hands it over and they live in the time of the judges. And if you read the book of Judges, it's a, it, they are stories of chaos and disorder. I mean, in the judges, you'll find the story of Samson and Delilah, You'll find the story of Gideon. You'll find the story of Jael, this woman who puts a tent peg through another man's head. It's hectic. You've got Deborah and Barak. You've got Ehud, the left-handed Benjaminite, who stabs this king, uh, the king of Moab, actually, which we'll hear about a bit more. And it, the dude is so fat that it says that the fat covers the handle of the sword. I mean, Judges is just all about graphic violence, chaos, and disorder. There's probably two things I want to say that are marked by the book of that the Judges is marked by in Israel's relationship with its neighbors. Firstly, there's oppression. We read through the book of Judges that, that the, the neighboring nations come in and oppress. In fact, we see that the Moabites oppress the land. They rule over Israel for 18 years. We read in the story of Gideon that the Midianites come rushing through and steal their harvest year after year. We also see conflict, as you see with Samson, with the Philistines. There's all this conflict and oppression from neighboring countries. 
But if there's oppression on one side, we then see attraction on the other. See, the continual battle for the people of Israel is they are attracted to the idols of the other nations. And they continually have this impulse to go and worship. It's a time of oppression and distraction and attraction. It's a time of chaos and disorder. And the last line of Judges, before we get to the book of Ruth, we read these words in verse 25. In those days, Israel had no king and everyone did as they saw fit. And that just to me sounds like anarchy. It's chaos, it's disorder. And into this context, we find this little beautiful story, this love story of Ruth. And so we read in Ruth chapter one, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Now we don't know why there was a famine. It could have been because there was no rain, but it could have been too because of raiding nations, the Midianites coming through and stealing their harvests. We actually don't know why they are in famine. But what we do know is that they are experiencing famine and they are stuck. And so there's a crisis moment, a crisis moment. And, and we find, we know this for ourselves, that crisis moments create crossroads moments. When we, when we come to a place of crisis, there inevitably comes a point of decision. It's a crossroads moment about where we are going to put our faith. What or who we are going to trust. See, famine here in this story reveals faith. Famine reveals faith. It reveals our faith. You know, when we, when, and when I'm, I'm not saying necessarily famine, famine, but anything in life where we encounter hardship, suffering, trial, pain. When we walk through these moments, we have a choice to make. Who or what are we going to trust? It's often in suffering moments that, that people actually turn back towards God. You know, in New York around 9-11, that after, after those planes flew into the two towers, the next Sunday, churches all through New York, in fact, throughout America, were full. See, in moments of crisis, people often turn towards God, but that's not always the case. There are many people who use uh, suffering in this world as an argument against God an argument to turn their back on God. I'll come back to that a little bit later. But we certainly see in this story, we see that um, Elimelech, in his suffering and pain, chooses to turn his back on the God of his forefathers. He says, I don't believe that there is hope for, 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 for this nation of Israel. I don't believe that God will provide for the needs of my family. And so he turns his back and he, and he goes towards Moab. And it's not just about moving towards Moab, but it's moving towards the gods of Moab. And you've got to understand there's a bit of context to this. You know, surely you think when you read this, well, you know, doesn't that make sense? If you've got no food, no resources, wouldn't you go down the road? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you move to save your family? Let me give you a little bit of context. Moab, the nation of Moab actually comes from a broken past. It goes right back to Lot. Lot has, uh, uh, commits incest with his daughter and has a child. And out of that child, we see the nation of Moab emerge. And in Deuteronomy, 
through a various set of circumstances, God tells the people of Israel not to associate with the Moabites. In, uh, two, uh, in Deuteronomy 23, verse 6, he says to them, Do not seek a treaty of friendship with Moab as long as you live. He says, Stay away. Do not have anything to do with Moab. We also need to understand that Moab worshipped two gods, Chemosh and Molech. And these were horrific gods, horrific idols that they had set up. And part of worship to Chemosh and Molech. Chemosh and Molech was child sacrifice. We actually see it in the book of Kings a little bit later on. We actually see an example of where the king of Moab kills his own son in a sacrifice of worship to the gods, the Moab gods. We also see it in other ancient Near East texts. This was a horrific religion to sacrifice your own children to a God to somehow get forgiveness, provision, help from this idol, this God. And the Lord warns the people of Israel, he says, have nothing to do with Moab. So when Elimelech chooses to take his family to Moab, it's not just one of resources, it's actually saying, I am choosing to trust the provision of the gods of Molech, uh, gods of Moab, Molech and Chemosh. We read this and go, that's really lovely, Andrew. You know, what's that got to do with us today? We don't worship gods of Chemosh and Moloch. And that's true. We don't. We don't worship those idols of stone and wood, but we do worship other idols made of stone, wood, glass, plastic, fabric, metal, steel, iron. You know, we live in a consumer-driven culture where we are told every day, if you just buy that, if you just get on that plane and go to that place, if you just experience this, if you just attain that, then you will be fulfilled. You will be happy. If you just get this thing, if you just have this, and advertising and marketing and our digital screens are telling us all the time that you lack until you have that thing or experience that thing. And it goes deep into our heart and deep into our psyche. And unless we, we're in love with God and we've got our eyes fixed on Him, it's so easy to believe the narrative that we are not enough unless we have that thing. And so many people in our Western culture today are sacrificing themselves and their families and their friends and their values and their morals on the, on the altar to get that thing. Oh, there's sacrifices being made. There are idols in our world today. They may look different to the ones of the ancient Near East, but we still live in an idol-laden culture and idols, the idols that we set up created things, whether they are iPads or whether they are idols of stone and wood, will ultimately, inevitably fail us. And they fail us and they fail Elimelech and his family. And we see here that Naomi is left in desolation with nowhere seemingly to go. She doesn't have friends, she doesn't have family, she doesn't have her customs, she doesn't have her safety. There is just despair. It's pretty grim, isn't it? First five verses, you're introduced to the story, you're introduced to all the people, and then half of them die. 
and they're in famine. That's it. The good news is that despite the unfaithfulness here in this story, God remains faithful. Despite our unfaithfulness, we need to get this, despite our unfaithfulness, let's make it personal for a moment. Despite our unfaithfulness, God remains faithful. And Naomi acknowledges this. What's the first thing she does? Verse six, we see Naomi, when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. We read firstly that God provides. It's not when she heard that Israel was doing well and there was food in the land. No, 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 the messaging is when she heard that God had provided for the needs of the nation. God is the one who provides, and we're gonna look at that more next week, that God is Jehovah Jireh. He is the provider. But we see that God provides for Israel. And Naomi acknowledges in that place of desolation in Moab, she acknowledges the character and the nature of who God really is. She continues in verse eight. She says this to her daughters, or daughters-in-law. She says, may the Lord show you what? Kindness, as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in your home, in the, sorry, find rest in the home of another husband. We see here in this statement, there's a whole bunch of things going on here culturally. But what we do see is that Naomi acknowledged that, not acknowledges that in all of this, in all of the mess, God still has the character of kindness. Now that word kindness there is a hard to translate word. It's the word hesed. It's the word hesed, which is the most common used word to describe the nature, the character, the love of God. It's a very hard word to describe because it's so multi-layered. It's the covenantal love, the faithful, kind, gracious, compassionate love of God. It comes up time and time and time and time again in the Old Testament. Hesed. God is a covenantal God who, who is kind, does not let the people of Israel go. Sally Lloyd-Jones in the wonderful book, the, the children, what is it, the Jesus Storybook Bible, which uh, is for our kids, but has some profound truth in it, describes Hesed love like this. It's God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That is Hesed love. You know, that Hesed love, that covenantal love, that kindness, that compassionate love, that deep love, well, that's revealed by God. Profoundly, it's revealed by God in the person of Jesus Christ. God who steps down from heaven to earth. See, Hesed, God's covenantal love, is revealed in Himself, stepping down from heaven and to earth. God is faithful to us. Now, we, let's take, again, let's make this personal. We are unfaithful. But even though we are unfaithful in so many different ways, God is faithful to you. God is faithful to you. To me, I love in Ephesians chapter two, Paul writes, he's writing to the church in Ephesus and he describes this kind of love that God has for us despite our unfaithfulness. In Ephesians two verses one to seven, he says, as for you, 
You were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to, now the motifs between this and Ruth are pretty strong, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among, lived among them at one time. We're all like Elimelech. We've all gone and lived amongst the gods of Molech, so to speak. All of us have lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his what? His great love for you and me. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His, in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Oh, we're not deserving of grace. We're not deserving of forgiveness. We're, we're all unfaithful. We all deserve to be left to suffering, to death. But in his great mercy, in his great kindness, in his hesed love, he's come for every one of us. He's come for you. He's been faithful to you. Not only is God faithful to us, but we see here that Naomi is faithful. And where Elimelech fails, Naomi succeeds. Where Elimelech turns away from Yahweh, Naomi turns toward Yahweh. She stays faithful in the middle of the struggle. Where Elimelech abandons God in the midst of the struggle, Naomi stays faithful to God in the midst of the struggle. Here's the encouragement to all of us tonight. Stay faithful in the midst of the struggle. Naomi is faithful. We see this as she turns back towards Bethlehem and she takes Ruth with her. And we heard that story. I don't have time to unpack all of that tonight. But, but, uh, but Ruth stays. Orpah goes back to her home. And we read this as, uh, as they get back to Bethlehem in verse 20. She says to them, as they're shocked, they're going, who's this? It's Naomi. She's back. And yet, you don't understand. Naomi now has no husband. She is a shamed person. She has abandoned the family. She has abandoned God. And she comes back. You can imagine how humiliating and shameful it was to come back to her homeland. And they say, can this be Naomi? And she responds in verse 20, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. I want to pick out three points here about how we are to walk through pain well. How do we walk through pain well? This is important for us all. It doesn't matter how old you are. At least take notes because pain will come if you haven't experienced pain. Just a heads up. You're welcome. Firstly, be honest with the pain. Be honest with your pain. Naomi doesn't downplay what she's going through. She doesn't ignore it. 
I think we often want to ignore either the pain that we're experiencing or if we come into context with others who experience pain, we seek to downplay it. We need to look pain fair in the eyes. And Naomi looks pain fair in the eyes. She says, don't, don't call me Naomi. You know what Naomi means? It means pleasant. It means sweet. She says, don't, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara which means bitter because the Lord Almighty has made my life very bitter. See, we need to name the things that we're walking through if we're to address them in the right kind of way. Let's look at pain and suffering for what it is. Naomi is honest with her pain. Secondly, she's honest with God in the pain. Be honest with God in the pain. Every morning, Monday to Friday, 7 o'clock to 7.30 in the morning, we gather together to pray as a church on Zoom. You'd be more than welcome to come. A bunch of young adults join us during the week. And every morning, we read a psalm together. One of the things about the psalms you'll pick up very quickly is that David and the other writers are incredibly honest with God about their pain. It's kind of like, God, why did you let this happen? How could you let this happen? I mean, it gets really honest. I mean, to the point where they're asking that God would smite other people and throw down their children. I mean, it's, 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 it's hectic. It's honest. It's real. It's gut stuff. And we are invited. That's an invitation that we are to be honest with God in our pain. And Naomi is honest to God with her pain. You pick this up. She says, God Almighty has made my life bitter. It's Almighty, it's the Almighty who has brought misfortune upon me. Now, it's very interesting that, that she refers to God's name four times in, this, in these, just these couple of verses. And there are two names that she repeats twice. The first one you would have picked up is Almighty, the Almighty. Now, that name of God is the name El Shaddai. And that's a name that, that, that declares the power of God, the, the, the sovereignty of God, the, the overarching nature, the power, the glory, the, the control that God has over all. And she says, God, you are the one who is sovereign. You're the one who's in control. God, why didn't you step in? God, why didn't you change my circumstances? God, why didn't you rescue me? You're the one who is sovereign. You're the one who is powerful, God. Why didn't you intervene? God, you have let this happen to me. Naomi is honest. She says, God, why? How could you let this happen to me? But there's another name that she also invokes in this. It's the the word that we read in capital letters. It's the word Lord. And that name, the word Lord, is the name Yahweh. Now, if you ever see, just a tip, if you ever see the word Lord in capital letters in your Bible, it's actually the word, the name Yahweh, which comes, derives the the name of God, which is I am. I am who I am. It's a personal, present God. Yahweh, the the word moves to Yeshua and and the, the Hebrew name for that is the word Joshua. Yahweh, the Lord who saves. Joshua means the Lord who saves. You know what the Greek word for Joshua is? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. 
See, Naomi doesn't just confront the sovereign God, but she also evokes the God who is personal, the God who is for, the God who saves. Oh, she's honest in her pain, but she turns towards God in her pain. It's important. She acknowledges the God who is personal. She doesn't turn away from God in her pain, but she turns toward God in her pain because she understands the character of God. Even though she can't equate, she can't understand all the things and why things happen to her, she does know that God is for her. She does know that God is kind. She does know the hesed nature of God. And, and th this is for us as well as we walk through our pain, even though we can't always understand, we can look to Jesus. This is an encouragement for all of us in the midst of our pain and our suffering. We can look to a God who is personal, who has revealed his love for us. There is no other religion, there is no other God out there that acknowledges that God came down from heaven to earth and suffered amongst us. Foolishness. It's an offence, but it's the Christian God, Jesus, who comes and suffers amongst us and suffers for us so that we can know hope, that we can know life, even in the midst of our suffering and pain. And here's what I wanna say, if you are walking and you're wrestling at the moment your faith because of suffering that you are experiencing or because you have observed it in others, it doesn't matter what faith you have or non-faith you have, every one of us has to grapple with the reality of suffering in this world. If you're an atheist and you see suffering, you ask the question, well, that's just evolutionary biology. It's just part of the deal. Suck it up, sweetheart. I mean, really, if you're, if, you're, if you're a theist or you believe in a God of some kind, we all have to grapple with suffering. But here's the great hope of the Christian faith. We're not alone. And even though we can't fully understand it, what we do know is that God has stepped down from heaven to earth and he has suffered in our place for our sins in order that we can have an eternal hope. We've been saved. The Lord saves He's saved us. We are not just temporary beings, but we have been saved for an eternity. And when we understand that, we can walk through anything knowing that we have eternity to look forward to. The early Christians went to the lions refusing to declare anybody else but Jesus as Lord. They suffered, they were tortured and they died because they had an eternal hope in their heart. For us, we're not having to confront going into the Colosseum and being thrown to the lions, but we do experience suffering and pain in different ways. And my encouragement to us, because it comes from Ruth, is that we are called in the midst of our pain, in the midst of the hardness, in the midst of the suffering, to not give in. To not do what Elimelech did and turn our back and turn towards other things, but to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus who gives us meaning, purpose, and hope. And this is really hard because we live in a culture and a society that hates to experience pain. You know, we're told that the, the, that the utopian vision for the secular West is to experience happiness. If we experience happiness, then, then somehow we're there. But guess what? Happiness is just out of reach because there's always a new, a new TV. 
There's always another place to go. There's always another need. There's always something else to achieve. I'm here to tell you that the great utopian hope is not happiness in this life. It won't give us what we need. It's just a distraction. It's just an addiction. It's just a medication, a temporary medication for the pain. But knowing that we're saved in Jesus, that we can walk through pain, suffering, and trial with our eyes fixed on Jesus, and that Jesus, that gives us great, deep, great, deep meaning, hope, and purpose. And more than that, it's actually as we walk through struggle, pain, famine, whatever you want to call it, that actually takes us deeper, that actually grows us, that actually it strengthens our, our faith in deep ways. There's always a gap too between what we believe God has promised for us and how he provides for us. There's always a gap. There's always a gap. There's always a time of frustration. I say to, say to people, frustration is a good thing because it's a sign of vision. You know, if you've got a vision in your heart, whatever it is, it's because you know that things aren't the way they should be. There's a frustration that arises in different ways. It's a good thing. There's always a gap between the promise and the provision. And so we need to mind the gap. I don't know if you've, any of you have ever travelled to the UK, but uh, you'll always hear on the tubes that when the, tube, when the train comes up, you'll hear over the loudspeaker, mind the gap. Mind the gap. In other words, don't fall on the rails because you'll die. And that's essentially, that's essentially what they're saying. Make sure you step over and into the train. Mind the gap. The message for us tonight is mind the gap. Live in the gap of promise and provision well. Don't turn your back on God, but keep your eyes fixed on Him because it's in the gap that God will reveal His deeper purposes to you. It's in the gap that you'll be shaped in deeper ways. It's in the gap that your faith is formed in profound ways. Or to use another analogy, use your dash well. What do I mean by that? I stole this from another pastor. Use your dash well. Well, we live um, just a couple of hundred metres from a really large cemetery. And um, our kids... Uh, will pass by Dutton Park Cemetery every day on their way to school. And sometimes as we're coming home from somewhere, we will ride our bikes through it. And you'll see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of headstones. I don't know if we've got any headstones. Uh, I took some photos just the other day. No, we don't. Yeah, we do. Yep, fantastic. I mean, you have got one here. A 26-year-old. We, we had Remembrance Day just this week. W.F. Stebbings, who would have died in 1946, 7th of December, age 26, we don't know what his life was like. A young man, same age, similar age to some of you guys, died probably in horrific circumstances. He knew suffering. There are a whole bunch of others around there and their life, often, often on a headstone, is you'll have their born, when they were born, then a dash, and when, then when they died. My point is this, is what you do in the dash is what counts. What you do in the dash is what counts. What you do in the dash is what counts. You know, I look at many, many stories and, and we hear many stories of people who have fallen at the last hurdle. They've lived a great life, but in their last few years, they blew it. 
My encouragement for us is to live your dash well. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Don't let go. Learn to wait. Learn to live with unfulfilled hopes. Learn to live with disappointment. They will come along. And I know it doesn't sound very exciting, but there is a greater purpose. There is a greater joy in all of this. Why? One, because we can keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. We have an eternal hope. God will provide, if not in this life, for eternity. And as we do, and as we are shaped, as we're formed, we find a deeper joy. Paul writes about this, doesn't he? He says, I've learned how to be content in every situation. You know when he writes that? He's, he's writing that from prison. I've learned, the, I've learned what it means to be content. There's a deeper joy for us that is so counter-cultural. And Naomi walks this counter-cultural life. And you know what? As she walks that counter-cultural, as she walked that countercultural life, and as we walk that countercultural life, we will shine hope, life, and joy to an anxious, depressed, longing world. See, our faithfulness is a strength that others can cling to. Our strength, sorry, our faithfulness is a strength that others can cling to. And we see here, to land this story, we see that Ruth looks at Naomi. As Naomi says, go back to your own home, go back to your own country and go and, go and find another husband if you can. Ruth says, no, no, no. I am staying with you. Why? Well, because I've seen who you are. I've seen your character and I know the character of your God. I will go with you. I will, I will follow you. Wherever you go, I will go. The God that you worship, I will worship. I will die where you die. I'm not going anyway. I'm clinging onto you. I'm grabbing hold of you and I'm not going, going to let go. That word cling is the same word used in Genesis chapter two when, when, when we read that Adam will, uh, Adam, um, uh, when, a, when, a, when a, a man leaves his father and mother, he will cleave to his wife and they will become one flesh. That's how strong she's clinging on. It's the same word. She's clinging on. She's not letting go because she cannot let go of this hesed love that she has seen in Naomi. She cannot let go of the kindness that she can see who is the God of Israel. And it's interesting that, that Ruth uses the word Yahweh. Your God, your Yahweh will be my God. There's this beautiful picture in Zechariah chapter eight, verse 23. It's a prophetic picture. I believe it's a picture that we need to take hold of personally and as a church. And it, hold, and it grabs hold of this motif that we read in the book of Ruth. This is what the Yahweh Almighty says. In those days, 10 people from all languages and nations will take a firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his road and say, let us go with you because we have heard that God is with you. See, as we find a deeper purpose and contentment in God, as we walk with Jesus, knowing that He saves us and He saved us because He suffered for us, as we find a deeper joy, meaning and purpose in this life, whether we go through good times or where we go through times of pain and suffering, we will shine a light to a culture that does not have the God that we have. 
the gods of this society, the gods of Western culture are failing. We know this, anxiety, depression is going through the roof. Now, by all other means, we are incredibly wealthy. We are living longer than ever before. We have access to incredible wealth, incredible health. By many other metrics, we have so much, yet as a nation and as a Western culture, we are depressed, anxious, worried. And in this world, in this society, in our city, the city of Brisbane, in our universities, our workplaces, we are a gift. We can be a gift to an anxious world. We can walk with a deeper contentment that is a non-anxious presence. My prayer is that for us as a church, that people from all nations will see us and they will run and they will grab hold of us and say, we are not letting go. We're not gonna let go because what you have, we want. We're desperate and I'm seeing it. I'm seeing it now in our city. In these times, it's not hard to say to somebody, hey, would you like to come to church? Hey, did you know, did you know that God loves you? Hey, do you know I'm part of a community that, 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 that is just so wonderful and so welcoming? Do you know that, that, that I believe that I find my identity and hope not in what I do or what I have or how I succeed or not, but, but in a God who loves me? I tell you, that is good news. It's good news. Somehow we are so afraid to let people know at times. When, when, when our lives are changed, and we walk in this non-anxious presence, we shine a light to an anxious, broken, hurting world. So let's be like Naomi. Let's stay faithful in the gap. Let's stay faithful in the suffering. Let's stay faithful in the good times and in the bad times. Because as we do, we will find deep joy, meaning, purpose and contentment. And we will shine to a desperate world that same good news. In a moment, we're going to sing a song written by Horatio Spafford. I just like saying that, that name because it's so good. Jacob could have been a Horatio, I reckon. Our son. Horatio Spafford went through a whole bunch of anxiety. He, he was a lawyer in Chicago, lost pretty much all his investments and possessions in the great Chicago fire. Two years later, all his children drowned in the Atlantic uh, in a boating accident. And as he traveled across, he was, he was coming after them. When they got to the spot where the, the boat went down, he penned the words to a song, which, which some of you may know, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrow like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, you have taught me to say, it is well with my soul. His life is really interesting after that. I don't have time to go into it, but he gave up his life with his, with his wife and he had more kids and they gave their life to mission. He found a deep hope even in the midst of his pain and his suffering, knowing that God was with him. And maybe tonight you need to know, we're gonna sing this in a moment, you just need to know that in, your, in the midst of your frustration, in the midst of the gap, in the dash, things are hard for you right now. 
Maybe that promise that you've been holding onto, that hope that you have has not yet been realised. Maybe there's a disappointment. Maybe you're dragging yourself to work at the moment going, this is not what I wanna be doing. Maybe there's a relationship that's broken and you wish that it was fixed. Maybe there's a frustration in your heart. Maybe there's something else. There's a physical ailment. There's some, something going on with your mental health or whatever. There's a, su- a suffering, a pain, and you just wish you were set free. It'd be great just to, again, an invitation to lift your eyes and say, God, I choose to follow you. I'm gonna be faithful to you. He may set you free from that. He may resolve it, but maybe He has not finished His work in you. Maybe He's doing a deeper work in your life. But whatever your story is, whatever your circumstance is, we're gonna worship, we're gonna get the band to come up now. And I'd love for us just to do this, do a courageous thing. I'm just gonna invite you just to stand where you are. We're not gonna come forward tonight, but I'd love for you to stand where you are so that others can gather around you and stand with you and to encourage you and pray for you as we sing, it is well with my soul. So if you're here tonight and you just love to receive prayer, whatever the story is in your journey, whatever, whatever the, whatever's going on, there's no judgment here or, or second guessing or whatever, but just where you're at, just go, yeah, I'm choosing to fix my eyes on God. I'd really just, I'm choosing to be faithful in the gap. Come on, just stand where you are right now. Can you do that? Awesome. I reckon there's a number of us. Come on, just stand where you are. great to pray for you. Come on, just stand. It could be big, it could be small. You're fixing your eyes on Jesus afresh tonight. Anyone else? Just stand where you are. Anyone else? Awesome. Awesome. Hey, I wonder whether we can all stand now and whether we can just gather around these guys. Come on, just a few people, just for each around Sue Ann, Tilla, Hope, Michael. Awesome. Just Here's what I encourage you to do. Just to, just, you don't even need to talk to them right now, but as we sing, just one at a time, pray out in a loud voice, just words of encouragement, words of hope, words of restoration uh, in the midst of their journey. Come on. And for the rest of us, let's sing this great song. The, the words have been, the, the, the tune has been changed a bit, but the words remain. Come on, let's sing it as well. And let's pray for these guys. Come on, just begin to pray for those who are around them. Let's sing. Let's pray. We hope you've been blessed by this message. If we can pray for you or you would like to take a further step in your relationship with Jesus, we would love to connect with you please head to gatewaybaptist.com.au and click on Get Connected to let us know.